We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 14. Verse 1. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks to be here. We thank you for gathering us together, for bringing us together in your name, for calling us out of this world, for calling us out of this world ultimately to your son and bringing us into his kingdom. And we thank you, Lord, for gathering us together this morning, bringing us together people who in and of ourselves are broken, weak, helpless, needy, and yet you give us all things, and we thank you. And Lord, I ask that your power would be great this morning, and that through your Holy Spirit you would minister to us through your word as we look at your son Jesus and his words this is all about him. This is what he has done and what he has said. Tune our ears to hear him, Lord, and fix our eyes upon him this morning, I pray, as we look at this passage. Do a work of transformation in our hearts as we renew our minds this morning and think about our great Savior. Speak to us, Lord, for we're listening, and we love you for what you've done for us and who you are. Lord, I just commit this time to you and ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'd like you to imagine with me a purely hypothetical situation. If it's a bizarre situation, if it seems bizarre to you, it is bizarre. It's totally hypothetical. I want you to imagine that Jesus has not come yet. Okay, the Old Testament has been written, and yet I want you to imagine that the Messiah hasn't come, but here we are in the 21st century. 
And I want you to imagine that you're filling up your car at a gas station at a convenience store. And as you're filling up your car like you do, you know, many, many times, you're not thinking anything of it. The person who's filling up his car next to you initiates a conversation with you. And he proceeds to tell you that he can give the gift of eternal life. And then he proceeds to tell you things about yourself that nobody knows. He proceeds to tell you your background and you know no one can know these things. And then to cap it all off, he proceeds to tell you that he is the Messiah. And there you are at the gas station with your... Now, of course, that's an impossible situation, according to the scriptures. But it still gives us something of the astonishing nature and something of the flavor of this encounter that the woman had with Jesus. It was just a mundane situation. She was just doing the thing that she always does. She didn't expect to run into the Messiah. And there's this complete stranger who strikes up a conversation, tells her those things. And the way you would feel in that situation is probably the way that she felt in that situation as well. Before we look at this story, I'd like to just reset the stage because it's been a while since we've been looking at the Gospel of John. And I'd just like to remind us of something very important about the Gospel of John. You'll remember that when we started this series, I began by saying that the entire Gospel of John is condensed in the prologue. Do you remember that? And we, and we looked at the prologue of the Gospel of John, which is in chapter 1. And I said that the prologue is like an overture. You know, in the musicals and the plays, you have the overture where they basically sample all the music that you're going to hear throughout the musical and throughout the play. And then you proceed to watch the musical. Well, in the Gospel of John, in the prologue, John exposes us to the major themes of this Gospel. Or perhaps we might better say to the one major theme of the Gospel and its different aspects. Because John is so focused on one thing. The rest of the Gospel of John is just unpacking what that major theme is. And what is the major theme of the prologue that's, that we're shown there? And we all should know this. Essentially, and there's many different ways we can word this, but essentially the major theme of the Gospel of John is that the Word, who is the Son of God, became flesh and brought to this world grace and truth, thereby making known the Father which knowledge is eternal life. Would you agree that that's a pretty good synopsis of what the theme of the Gospel of John is? The Son of God has come and he's brought us the knowledge of God, which is eternal life. So we could word it differently. The Son of God has come and brought us life. But let's understand life is knowing God. And how does he bring us the knowledge of God? He brings us the knowledge of God by coming and bringing grace and truth. And if we keep this prologue in mind and this major theme in mind, then John 4, and I suggest all of the Gospel of John, will begin to make sense. Brothers and sisters, whatever else this story in John chapter 4 is about, whatever else this encounter with this woman is about, it's about that major theme of the Son of God coming and bringing the knowledge of God and grace and truth to this needy world. So this morning as we look at this story... 
this remarkable story of a very common and sinful woman who encounters Jesus in that bizarre way. We're going to uh, look at it in three sections. Number one, the first section I've called the interestingly uninteresting occasion of the conversation. <laughs> the interestingly uninteresting nature of the occasion of the conversation. Secondly, we'll look at the first half of the conversation. I wanted to, I tried to squeeze it all in, and I figured there's just no possible way. So next week, we'll, we're going to look at the second half of the conversation. So the second section is the first half of this conversation. And then thirdly, I'd just like to reflect on the irony and the beauty of this picture. The irony and the beauty of this scene. So first of all, the interestingly uninteresting occasion of the conversation. Now, let's look at verse 1, 2, and 3 here. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So let us for a moment recall the sequence of events that led us, that's led us to this place. You'll remember we first saw John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness and baptizing uh, He's calling Israel to repentance. He's calling Israel to confession. And he's, and he's inviting them to be baptized. He's hugely popular. And then Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And he began to gather some of John the Baptist's followers. But at this point, Jesus was quite unknown in Israel. Even though he was baptized and started getting a few followers, Israel as a nation didn't really know who Jesus was. And then we read in the Gospel of John that Jesus launches himself out into the public eye at the Passover. And it's interesting, scholars can even pinpoint the exact date of that Passover. It was actually April 7th, 30 AD. That's the best scholarship. They can even pinpoint the day. They know because the Passover follows the moon cycles and so they can know just what that was. And on that Passover, April 7th, 30 AD, Jesus enters the temple and gives everybody his first impression, <laughs> cleanses the temple, kicks everybody out, and launches himself into the public eye. It's fitting that he'd begin his public ministry in Jerusalem since he is the king of that place. John tells us that Jesus did many miracles at that Passover, and so he began to have a big following at that point. And in the third chapter, verse 22 after the Passover, Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He enters the land of Judea, the countryside of Judea, and he and his disciples begin baptizing. And John makes the point to say Jesus didn't actually baptize anybody. It was just his disciples, thus kind of downplaying water baptism. Jesus begins increasing. John the Baptist begins decreasing. And when the Pharisees realizes that John the Baptist isn't their main problem anymore, but Jesus is their main problem, when Jesus realizes that they're picking up that he's more popular than John now, he leaves the countryside of Judea, chapter 4 tells us, and he goes back into Galilee. Why does Jesus leave? <clears throat> Likely to avoid confrontation. He had sowed the seeds of hostility and conflict with him and the Pharisees in Jerusalem, but it was not yet his time for a confrontation. So, it's likely that he leaves just to avoid any confrontation. Now look at verse 4 with me. We've caught up to the scene. Verse 4 tells us that 
To get to Galilee, he has to pass through Samaria. That's a simple fact of geography and nothing more. There's some commentators that want to load verse 4 with more meaning, like he had to go to Samaria for some, you know, in his heart, some intention. But I think it's best to just take that as a simple geographical fact. Kind of like if you're, if you're going to take the 89 to Brigham City, you have to go through Sardine Canyon. So to get to Galilee, Jesus has to go through Samaria. And that's kind of a da-da-da-da moment in the, in the Bible because the Jews don't like the Samaritans. It's like, I have to go through that place. And if a Jew had to go through there, they'd probably just try to get through it as quick as possible. In verse 5 and 6, we read that Jesus comes to a city in Samaria near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And you can read about that in the Old Testament. It doesn't need to uh, detain us here. And he sits down at Jacob's well. It's interesting that even today you can go there and you can visit Jacob's well and the tomb of Joseph that's actually near that place. So we're dealing with uh, a location that still exists. Now, what is interesting to me about this occasion is how utterly uninteresting this occasion is. Now, let me put this in contrast with an occasion, a meeting, that I think is very interesting. If you want an interesting meeting, I think of Henry Morton Stanley meeting David Livingston in Africa. That's an interesting occasion. Are you, you familiar with this meeting, right? So David Livingston's this famous medical missionary and he goes to Africa and he's, he's, he goes there because he wants to reach the Africans for Christ. He wants to end the slave trade, actually. And he also wants to discover more of Africa and, and, and uh, ex be uh, an explorer as well. And he's very famous. But David Livingston goes missing. It causes a sensation in England. David Livingston, his famous missionary, is miss missing. We don't know where he is. Is he dead? Is he alive? And so Henry Morton Stanley is commissioned to go find David Livingston. Everyone's excited about this meeting. And Stanley travels 700 miles through the tropical jungle and finds David Livingston. What an, what an occasion. And when he finds him, you know the famous encounter, right? He, does, he finds him, he comes to him, he says, Dr. Livingston, I presume, right? That's an interesting meeting. Now, why did this meeting happen? Well, this meeting happened because Jesus was in Samaria at this well in Sychar. Why was he in Samaria? Well, the Bible says he had to go through there to get to Galilee. It's kind of a mundane reason why Jesus is there. He's on his way to Galilee. He has to go through there. Why is Jesus at the well? Well, he's thirsty. Kind of a mundane reason to be there as well. He's weary, the Bible tells us. And thus, verse 6 says... He sat at the well. Preachers like to draw our attention to this fact that Jesus was weary and marvel at how incredible it is that God, for all of eternity, who had no need of anything, took on flesh and blood and experienced weariness. G. Campbell Morgan says this, puts it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and traveled from Judea through Samaria until he came to Sychar and was tired. <laughs> I love that because it shows you just how 
when we're talking about Jesus becoming flesh, we're talking about him really becoming a human, just like us, and experiencing life just as we experience it. Why was the woman there? Well, it's probably just a routine trip to the well. She's fetching water. So what I'm trying to say is it's kind of an uninteresting meeting compared to a meeting like Livingston and Stanley, right? It's just kind of humdrum and mundane. They had to be there. It's coincidental, right? You could look at it that way. And yet, I believe that the Bible wants us to understand that these uninteresting, mundane circumstances were the divine means of an extraordinary encounter between Jesus and this woman that led to the transformation of a whole city in Samaria, right? There's a heavenly reason why Jesus and that woman met. There's a providential reason why they met, even though by all appearances, all appearances, it's uninteresting. And I think that's a great encouragement for you and I. I really do, and I think we shouldn't miss this point, that even when our circumstances don't appear to be anything special, God is still at work in our mundane circumstances. You should never think that, well, if the circumstances are mundane and there's no special reason why I'm here or there, then I shouldn't expect God to be in it. In it. That's not a true biblical way of thinking, is it? God works not despite our monotonous circumstances, not despite the monotonous humdrum of life, but through it. And I think that's a very encouraging point to take from this text. Always be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Always trust God and always be hopeful. And don't think that if your circumstances don't seem to be anything special, that God cannot be working in your circumstances. That's why I say this occasion is so interestingly uninteresting. Now let's go to the second section here, the conversation, the first half. Verse 7, we see that Jesus initiates the conversation with this woman by saying, give me something to drink. He initiates the conversation and states, give me something to drink. If we jump to the end of the conversation, he ends it by saying, I who speak to you and the Messiah. <laughs> wow, what a conversation. I, you ever had one of those conversations where you get to a certain point in the conversation, you go, how did we get to that, right? <laughs> and you try to trace it back. Oh, well, yeah, we talked about that, then we talked about that, then we talked about that. Wow, I can't believe we went from there to there, <laughs> right? Well, Jesus knew from the beginning where he was going. When he said, give me a drink, he knew he was going to announce to this woman that he was the Messiah. It may seem normal to us that Jesus asked, asked for a drink, but it was actually something abnormal. The text tells us that Jews and Samaritans don't have dealings with one another, and the text in the Greek literally means they don't use the same dishes. So when Jesus says, give me a drink, she's the only one carrying a jar. And she's like, first of all, we don't get along, and second of all, there's only one jar here, and it's mine. And you guys don't drink from Samaritan jars. Jesus is doing something abnormal. He's deliberately breaking through the boundary to reach her and to reach her people. Perhaps for, his, for him doing this, later in the Gospel of John chapter 8, he's accused of, being, of having a demon and being a Samaritan. Remember that? 
He's accused of being a Samaritan. Why would he be accused of being a Samaritan unless they somehow knew that he had some dealings with the Samaritans, right? But Jesus doesn't care if his reputation gets smeared by those men. D.A. Carson comments, John may intend a contrast between the woman of this narrative and Nicodemus of chapter 3. Nicodemus was learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable only of folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast, and both needed Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? Chapter 3, Jesus is talking to one of the top theological guys in Israel. Chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a, a sinful common woman at a well. And so we see the range here of the people that Jesus has come for, right? All of us. We see the breadth of his love, that he loves all of us as well. He loves those who are of the upper class in society, and he loves those who are not and who are of the lower class. We see the breadth of his love. And I also see how freely and naturally he's able to talk with both. He's not awkward with one or the other. Do you notice that? He's able to converse naturally with Nicodemus at a higher level, and he's able to converse naturally with this woman as well. That's the kind of person Jesus, Jesus is. Verse 9, we see the woman is confused. Verse 10, Jesus shows us how he is thinking of spiritual reality and of spiritual truth. In verse 10, he makes this remarkable statement. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This statement gives us several insightful things to consider. First of all, don't miss this. God has a gift for this world. Amen? That's what he says. If you knew the gift of God. So he's saying God has something to give. And that's one of the things we proclaim as Christians to this world, isn't it? We don't come to the world like all the other religions in the world and say, you know, you need to give something to God here. We as Christians say, you know, we all failed at that. Right? Yeah, we've passed that stage. We haven't given to God his due. But the good news is that God has something to give to us. We proclaim his gift. Jesus in this verse doesn't explicitly say what the gift is, does he? He just says, if you knew the gift of God. He tells us it's living water. But even that doesn't explicitly explain what it is. So in verse 10, we don't yet have an insight on what it is. But there is a gift. And secondly, he says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me, and I would have given you the gift. So what we see here is that God is willing to give the gift. <clears throat> he would give it. You see that in verse 10? He would have given you living water. God has a gift to give. The problem existing between man and God is not God is not that God lacks provision for this world's problems, nor that God is unwilling to give the gift to this world, this sinful world. Because we might say, God's willing to save us, but he doesn't have the means. 
Or we might say, God has the means to save us, but he doesn't have the willingness. But here we see God has both. And the problem is human ignorance of Jesus Christ and God. If you knew, if you knew, you'd ask and I'd give it. Now look at verse 11 and 12. The woman totally misunderstands Jesus completely. She misunderstands what he's talking about both when he talks about the gift and when he talks about himself. So when Jesus says, I would have given you living water, the woman mistakes him to mean simply running water. The, the, the phrase Jesus probably used was mayim chayim, living water, water that's alive. And she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Well, little did she know. <laughs> Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So what she's saying is, look, you don't have anything to draw water with. So if you're going to give me living water... Uh, you're going to need a vessel, and uh, you're going to need a different well. The well is too deep for you. And are you greater than Jacob? He gave us this well. Are you saying you're going to give us another well and replace this one? Now look at verse 13 and 14. We come to the crux of the matter. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now Jesus contrasts here the water that he gives with Jacob's well's water. And he contrasts it in two ways. One, he contrasts the different waters' potency, that is, what these different waters can do, and he contrasts the different waters' location, where the different waters are. He makes these, this contrast, these two things. And number one, he says that the water that I give quenches thirst forever. And secondly, the water that he gives becomes in the person a well of water springing up to everlasting life. What, where's the location of this water? Well, it actually becomes a well inside of you. What a, an amazing statement. And the woman likes both of these contrasts. Look at verse 15. Notice how she hears Jesus here. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw water. So she says, hey, that's great. I won't have to thirst anymore. She's still thinking naturally. I won't have to thirst anymore and I don't have to come here. She's probably joking. Let's just reflect on this this morning. I want you to think about what an extreme claim this is. Water that, will, that if you have, you'll never thirst again. That will become within you a well. This is an extreme claim. Brothers and sisters, it seems like it's the nature of everything in this life that it doesn't satisfy you in that way, right? You have to always come back again. And again and again. There's nothing that you can receive in this life, it seems, the nature of everything, that it never eternally quenches your thirst, right? And satisfies your soul. Think of Solomon 
in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, everything is vanity, right? Everything is futile. And he says, believe me, I know. Not everyone is in a position to do what I have done. I have pursued wealth. I have pursued women. I have pursued fame. I have pursued knowledge. And it's all vanity and leaves you empty. Ecclesiastes 6 verse 7 says, All of a man's labor is given to satisfy his mouth and it leaves him unsatisfied. <laughs> That's what he says. Isn't that true in your own life? Think of all that you put forth energy for in this life. You work for food. Food is a really big part of life. And we eat, right? And we're satisfied. But then it's not long after that that we're not satisfied anymore, right? It's just the nature of things. It's just the way it works. So you eat, and you're like, that was such a good meal. I don't ever want to eat again. A couple hours later, ooh, I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) How about fun? You put forth energy for entertainment, right? You have an itch or an excite, you know, you're excited for something fun. And, And as a kid, I remember distinctly telling my parents, Mom and Dad, if you buy me that Nintendo... I will never ask for another gift again, right? (laughs) How childish. (laughs) I really thought, though, from that perspective that, wow, if I get that, I'll be totally happy for the rest of my life. Nope. (laughs) How many of you were looking forward to watching the Star Wars movie for the last two years, right? There's excitement there. I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to see that. And then finally you watch it. You're like, oh, what's next, right? (laughs) we learn that we shouldn't put our hope in all of these things. They don't ultimately satisfy us. That shouldn't be what we're ultimately looking to and living for. Here's a fascinating thing that I heard, and it has stuck with me. Winston Churchill, a remarkable person in history, wouldn't you agree? Winston Churchill, as a child had this dream, I don't know if it was a literal dream when he was asleep, but he had this longing and this dream and this sense that he was called to save England. He did. Maybe it was a childish dream, but he was like, I just feel like my destiny to save England. I'm going to save England. And whether that was a childish sense or not, it ended up happening. And he was the man of the hour when England was in its direst need. And Winston Churchill's dream came true. You know, his aspiration, his, his great moment came for him. He became the Prime Minister of England during the Second World War and led the nation to victory and steered the nation through that time. Wow, you know, that's the top. I mean, you can't really go higher than that, fulfilling your dream, and, and what a dream that was, really. But his biographers tell us that after the war, Winston Churchill suffered from depression and emptiness. He he felt his life was so empty after the war. And he tried filling it up with other things. And you think, man, your aspirations, your desires were fulfilled. But after that, you're still unsatisfied. And I think that's a great warning to all of us. Don't buy into this lie. That the world tells you that, man, you know, live for your dreams, and if you just get your dreams, and if you just have that, then you'll be happy and satisfied. It's not true. 
Not that you shouldn't, you know, live for your aspirations, but don't put all your hope and stock in that. It won't satisfy you. One hymn writer writes, Earth's fountains fair but mock our souls like desert phantoms lure. And they that drink the fainter grow, the keener thirst endure. And so here Jesus is in the midst of this reality. The nature of things is not to satisfy you. He makes this amazing claim. The water that I give you, the difference between this and all the other things is that you'll never thirst again. Wow. I mean, that should just pique everybody's ears up, right? I don't care who you are. What an amazing claim. And so the question that we come to this morning is, what could possibly do that? What could satisfy us so that we'd never thirst again? And Jesus tells us that it is the water that he gives or, as we already saw, the gift of God. So what is this gift of God and what is the water that he gives? Now, someone who knows their Bible will be quick to say, it's the Spirit. Were you thinking that? Turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus returns to this very same idea, but he adds a little bit more information. And he says, it says here in verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, I believe, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, so here he gives us some more information, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's another way of saying, the well will be within you. Actually, the Greek word might better be translated, the spring will be within you. And verse 39, it says explicitly, by this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, there's a lot of things here, isn't there, to talk about. But what we see is that Jesus is talking about the same thing in slightly different ways, and, he ex- and, and, and the text here explicitly says, it's the Spirit. Now, I'm going to make a point here this morning that saying that it is the Spirit doesn't actually answer the question. So if I tell you, the gift of God is the Spirit. It'll quench your thirst forever. Do you now understand? See, the problem here, the difficulty, is that in the Bible, brothers and sisters, the Spirit is so multidimensional. That is, when the Bible talks about the Spirit, it could be talking about so many different things. Because when we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about the action of God or the activity of God. And the activity of God is very broad. And so when we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about something so broad. 
It's so big. So when we say Jesus is going to give us the Spirit, we need to further ask, okay, but what does that mean? I mean, what, what dimension of the Spirit are you talking about here? I'd like you to consider for a moment verse 39 of chapter 7. It says, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That is, this gift of the Spirit that Jesus is giving is dependent upon his death and his resurrection and his exaltation. True? Which means that what the Spirit means here, or the meaning of the Spirit here, excludes, and I make this very clear, I want to make this very clear, because the gift of the Spirit depends upon his death and his resurrection, it has not yet been given at that point, because Jesus had not been glorified. Therefore, the Spirit cannot mean miraculous power. True. Now, hasn't God, hadn't God in the Bible, before Jesus died and rose again and exalted, worked by His Spirit in people's lives? Hadn't He done that? Right? Hadn't the Spirit come upon people and given them miraculous powers like Elijah or Elisha? Hadn't, hadn't God done that already in the past? So we all agree that the Spirit was already at work in the world and doing things and doing miracles and giving prophecies and all these wonderful things on the, in the prophets before Jesus died and rose from the dead. Amen? But the gift that he's talking about here depends upon his death and his resurrection. Therefore, it must mean something different than just miraculous powers. Jesus is not saying, look, the gift that I give you is basically I'm going to make you all Elijah's and you're all going to be able to do miraculous things and therefore you'll be satisfied forever. Now, I, do, I, I don't wish to be misunderstood. The Bible in the New Testament teaches us that the Spirit does distribute miraculous powers to his people. Amen. Look at the book of 1 Corinthians. To some is given the speaking of tongues, prophecies, miracles, healings, those things are given to the church. I'm simply saying, that's not what Jesus is talking about here in the Gospel of John. And They're the same thing, yes. And it's not talking about, in other words, miraculous powers, you know, which are given to the church. I believe that to understand what this gift is of the Spirit, we're more on point if we ask the question, in the context of the Gospel of John, what does Christ give? And we already know the answer because we've actually already talked about it. In the context of the Gospel of John, Christ gives us eternal life. He gives us the knowledge of God. He gives us grace and truth. And this is a complex, compound thing. In other words, to talk about one of those things is to talk about them all. How do you want to approach this? He gives us the knowledge of God by giving us grace and truth, which is eternal life. Or he gives us eternal life, which is the knowledge of God, by giving us grace and truth. And I'd like us to examine a few different script, uh, 
several different scriptures which talks about this very same thing. And I'd like you to see that the gift of the Spirit that Jesus gives is this gift of eternal life and the knowledge of God and the grace of God. Turn with me to chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. Jesus talks about the same thing again, but a little bit differently. We'll just move quickly through these verses. There's so many we could look at, but I hope that this gives you a sense of what Jesus is talking about. In chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus again talks about hungering and thirsting and that he will give you a gift that will make you never hunger and thirst again. He says here in verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You see, he's talking about the same thing in a little bit of a different way. And now he's saying, I am the gift. Which is just another way of saying all that we've already said. I have come down from heaven to save you. I've come down to heaven to give you grace. I've come down to heaven to lay down my life on the cross for your sins. So that if you believe in me, you will have grace have the knowledge of God, have eternal life. And by having this, you'll never hunger or thirst. Let's jump to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. It's very important here because this is John who's writing. And what's interesting is that the book of Revelation in several places talks about living water. Revelation 22, verse 17. We're going to work backwards. The same author, John, talks about living water in the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 17. And here we have an invitation. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. What is this talking about? This is not talking about miraculous powers. As wonderful as those are, this is talking about eternal life, grace, and the knowledge of God. This is talking about believing in Jesus and receiving what he gives. Amen? Let's jump a little bit backwards here to chapter 17 of or excuse me, chapter uh, 21. Chapter 21, verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Notice this is the second time it says without cost. And please remember that as we'll be looking at another verse related to that. Chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. All talking about the same thing here. Chapter 7, verse 17. Actually, let's jump back here. The context is this mighty hymn, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The context here is all these people who are praising God for his great salvation. Verse 14. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. It's a beautiful expansion on this total satisfaction and deliverance from every need that we're given by God through Jesus Christ. Now you remember that Revelation says you may have this water of life without cost. That is an unmistakable reference, brothers and sisters, to Isaiah chapter 55. So let's turn back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 55. And I believe here in the prophet... Isaiah, we have one of the many Old Testament foundations of Jesus' statement, I will give you water and you'll never thirst. Isaiah 55, verse 1. First three verses here we'll read. And look how it starts. See, this, this is the passage that we should be thinking of when we think of, when, when we're reading John chapter 4. Look, or attention, everyone. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. This is an invitation, brothers and sisters, to salvation. And he's saying, listen and your soul will live and I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, which I believe is talking about this beautiful new covenant God makes with anyone who believes. And the essence of the new covenant, you'll remember, is I will forgive them of their sins And by doing that, they will know who I am. So here we have the concept again of salvation and grace and the knowledge of God and eternal life. This is what Jesus Christ gives us and what he came to give us. Isaiah chapter 12. We'll look at uh, this last verse here. There's many more we could go to.
And this is a short chapter, verse 1. This chapter is all about salvation. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the people. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth and in Logan, Utah. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Again, we have this compound here of salvation and grace and the knowledge of God and eternal life. Let's go back to John chapter 4. Jesus is saying to us, all that you ever wanted, real satisfaction and life is yours without any effort and without any cost, by simply believing in me, I will give you this. God will do the work, and through this you will know who he is. D.A. Carson comments, the thirst is met, not by removing this aching desire, but by pouring out the Spirit. It's an amazing thing. He actually gives us something that will satisfy us. So the question is, uh, what then is this well within us? Jesus speaks of the location. It will be in you. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that I will give you this living water. And it's not something you're going to have to keep coming back for, traveling to. But this salvation and this knowledge and this life, you will have in you wherever you go, this everlasting source of refreshing to yourself and to others. So Jesus is not saying, once you drink of this fountain, you then can be independent of me because you'll carry it around within you. He's saying, I will be in you. The gift of God's grace is Jesus Christ himself who is given to us in such a way, brothers and sisters, that we become unified with him and this is the blessed gospel that we believe. He comes to us and gives himself to us in such a way that he takes our lot upon himself and we take his lot into ourselves. He takes all of our sins and he gives us all of his righteousness and we are filled. Amen. And I believe Jesus is also saying something of the nature of the fact that we become, in a sense, dispensers also of this knowledge and of this life. We now can be a spring or a well for others as well. We aren't only satisfied, but we also are able to give that water of life to others as well. People today are fascinated by zombies, aren't they? And what's this whole zombie thing about? It's about some walking dead person who bites another person and then they become dead and it just keeps spreading, doesn't it? But in a sense, I think what Jesus is saying here is there's sort of a reverse zombie thing going on here. You become alive by him, and then you can go spread that life to others, and it can spread, right? 
I think there's something of that here. But it's with you and it's in you, this salvation and this life. I believe that all Christians who have believed in Jesus have this life and have this knowledge of God and have this salvation and this grace and are therefore no longer thirsty. There is a fundamental alignment that's taken place in your life if you've believed in Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we don't still experience physical thirst. True? How many of you still get physically thirsty, right? So Jesus isn't saying, man, when you believe in me, you won't be thirsty for anything anymore. He doesn't say that. We're still living in this world. We're still bombarded by need, physical need. And so if you find yourself needy and weak and thirsty and broken, don't think, oh, I haven't drunk from the waters of life. We can also grow in our knowledge of God. We can still forget and we can be confused. And I know this by personal experience. And when you get confused and when you forget what it is you truly believe, it doesn't always feel like you're satisfied, does it? But I think this is, what Je- this is the difference between these thirsts, is that at the foundation of our lives as Christians, at the rock bottom, because of what we believe, there is satisfaction and rest in the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. There may not always be satisfaction on the surface. And to, put it in, to, to look at it from another angle, there may be satisfaction on the surface in some people and no satisfaction at the foundation. Have you ever met somebody who's not a Christian and they may be eating, eating a wonderful meal at that moment and they feel totally satisfied, Right? But at the foundation of their life, at the core, there's a lack and there's a thirst. And I think the proof of whether you have that satisfaction at the core is this. When you fill your mind with truth, do you find yourself satisfied or unsatisfied? When you look past the surface and get past the surface dissatisfactions, or when you work through your confusions and you really get to reality, which can take some work, do you find yourself at rest, in hope, Mm -hmm. knowing God, and satisfied in the knowledge of who He is and what He's done for you? What is at the bottom? Because the non-Christian can't do that, right? The non-Christian can mask his dissatisfaction on the surface, but if he, if he reckons with reality, he finds himself empty. And the Christian can on the surface be dissatisfied and confused, but when he really reckons with reality, he finds himself satisfied. And of course, for all of eternity, when we're out of this cursed world, we will have pure, undistracted, satisfaction forever. What a glorious gift Jesus gives to us. I'd like to just close this morning by considering the irony and the beauty of this scene. This story in John chapter 4 paints a remarkable picture. There's, it is stark with graphic irony. Have you seen the graphic irony here? Here's Jesus sitting at a well, panting and thirsty, You know, when he talks to this woman, he might even be panting, like, 
give me some water. You know, <laughs> if you knew the gift of God, <laughs> he would give you eternal life. You'd never thirst again. <laughs> it's irony. It's funny. Here is Jesus panting and thirsting, asking this Samaritan sinner for a drink. I'm thirsty. Can you give me some water? Oh, by the way. Yeah. And yet, he's physically panting and offering her a water that will, that will make her never thirst again. Say, you'll never thirst again. Here is God brothers and sisters, who needs nothing. And we see him here partaking fully in the wearisome nature of man. God needs nothing for all eternity, has never thirsted. And here, he, here is God in the flesh fully partaking in our, in our wearisome nature. All because of sin, right? If it wasn't for sin and judgment and the curse, Jesus wouldn't be there panting and saying, this is a hard day. The sun's beating upon me and I'm very thirsty and uncomfortable. And here is God partaking of that weary and thirsty nature of man on account of sin so that man could fully partake in the contented and satisfied nature of God on account of righteousness. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Glory to God. And we sing in one of our songs, What a love, what a cost. Amen? Do you see the love of God in this? That he would do this for us, even though we don't deserve it? This woman didn't deserve it, and neither do you, and neither do I. We actually deserve the opposite. And what a cost. It's free for us. Totally free. It's a Christian gospel, isn't it? Pure eternal satisfaction, joy, eternal life in the knowledge of God for free because he paid it all. And we see Jesus on the cross what do, what do we see there? We see a man who's exhausted, broken, and thirsty. I thirst. I'm thirsting right now in extreme discomfort because of the sins of the world. And I'm doing it because I love them and I'm dying for them so that they will never thirst and be satisfied and whole forever. So this picture is ironic and it's absolutely beautiful, isn't it? So let us glorify our awesome God, brothers and sisters. Let us take comfort in his love and in his gift. And let us rejoice in his salvation. And if you're not a believer, if you don't have this peace and this satisfaction, then what you need to do is get rid of your ignorance and replace your ignorance with knowledge. If you knew the gift of God and who it was who was talking to you, you would ask of him and he would give you eternal life. You don't have to earn it. That's ignorance. And God is not unwilling or unable to give it to you. I'll just close with these words of a poem. 
O this well of living water springing up within my soul gives me blessed satisfaction while the changing seasons roll. And in Jesus' love rejoicing, still a song of praise I bring for the blessed gift of heaven for this ever-living spring. Stand with me as we pray. Thank you. Father, our words cannot do justice to the gift of God, the gift that you have given us. I pray that through this, uh, through this time of looking at your word, we would all get a greater sense of what you've done for us and how beautiful you are. Lord, that we would understand in a deeper way what we have in you, not only what you've given, but to realize you've given yourself You've given us yourself. Thank you so much, Lord, for this gift. We love you and we praise you. And may we ever praise you. And Father, I just pray that... I pray for us believers that as we face the difficulties in this life, we would remember the truth of who you are and take comfort and joy in the satisfaction that we have in you. Help us to see this daily. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.